All right. Well, I'll just wait while the rest just finish leaving. Jeez. There's, uh, there's still a lot of you. Does anyone else want to leave and make it a little bit easier for me? Oh, look at that. The nerves are killing me. Um, all right. Yeah, there's a few more of you than I would have thought. Um, but I am glad that you're here, regardless. It's great that you're here. It's probably a good time to come if you're here for the first time or maybe the first time in a while. We're actually starting a new series this week, so um, it's probably a good time to, uh, yeah, to join us. And I guess for those of you who maybe are visiting or haven't been here for a while, my name's Corbin. Um, yeah, I'm a student and I sometimes get up the front, hopefully on quieter weeks, but I've been stitched up this week. Um, but it is my privilege to kick us off on a new series. Uh, and as Janae was saying before, the series is called Who Am I? Um, now, like all good series titles, it's one that doesn't give too much away. So my, some of you might have been coming here this morning thinking if you'd heard the series title, you think, who am I? Like, what, what does that mean? Where are we going with that? Um, and, and I think, you know, people ask the question, who are you? Who am I? It's one of those questions that sometimes can fill us with a bit of dread. It gets my heart racing because the last thing you want, well, I don't know, maybe some of you are comfortable with this, the last thing I would want is for me to now get out the front and get you to get, get together in groups and just talk to each other about who you are. How would you describe yourselves in, in two or three sentences? It's a tough thing to do. Maybe some of you are comfortable sharing yourself or defining yourself to other people. I think it's something that a lot of us do struggle to do. Now, for me, I think what really drives this home for me, this sort of fear I have of, of trying to describe myself to other people, um, it kind of comes, hits hard pretty much this time of year, every year, because, um, I don't know, for those of you who are students, uh, maybe at TAFE or at uni, or um, it, I guess if you've ever started at a new job or a new school, um, this, kind of, this time of year is one of those times at uni anyway, where there's all new classes and tutorials starting up, so, you know, you're in with a group of 10 or 12 people that you don't really know, well, you don't know them at all, and um, they always seem to go the same way, the first session of every tutorial. Um, it's a special kind of hell for me. I, I, I don't enjoy it, and it feels like every class, the tutor, the, the tutor that we're just meeting for the first time, gets up the front, and a little bit too much enthusiasm for 8 a.m., they get up and they go... All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to your first tutorial of Bion 2200. My name is blah, blah, blah. I'm studying for my PhD in something vaguely related to this class, and I'll be your tutor this year for Bion 2200. So what I thought we could do is we could just go around each person, and I'll just let everybody introduce themselves, tell us where you're from, tell us what you're studying, and maybe just tell us a little fun fact about yourself. And it feels like every class is the same, right? We get, and the thing with it is, in every class, it's so awkward. It's so forced. No one actually wants to participate in that. No one wants to sum themselves up in, in one sentence, two sentences. I actually had a meme pop up on face this, Facebook this week about this very phenomenon. It said, I don't know if you can read that. It says, I'd rather take a razor scooter to the ankle 55 times than tell the class a fun fact about myself. Nobody, that's a, for those of you who are over 30, <laughs> that's a razor scooter and they do hurt. 
Now, I don't know if I feel that strongly about this, but, but it is interesting how many of us don't really like describing ourselves or defining ourselves to other people. So at uni, we go around the class, we go around the group, and there's 13 people in the class, 13 of us will say something along the lines of, uh, Hi, I'm Corbin. Um, I, uh, I'm studying a Bachelor of Science. I'm from Brisbane, and um, <laughs> I guess I just like to watch TV in my spare time. <laughs> And there's that for like 13 people. All of a sudden, everybody in the class is defined by how much they love TV. Well, that characterization actually rings pretty true for me. If you ask mum or dad, I actually have a disease where I watch too much TV. I have an addiction. But regardless, for, for all of us, that request to tell me a little bit about yourself or, or who are you, who am I, that can be a pretty difficult question to answer. And like, some of you might be here today for the first time, like I said, or the first time in a while, and, and maybe, maybe this series has got you on the back foot a little bit early on. So for those of you who aren't sure how you would answer that question, maybe that's what this series is about. It's, um, we won't be looking so much in, in how you define yourself, but we'll be looking a little bit at what Jesus would say to answer that question. If someone asked Jesus, who are you? What would he say? And some of you might be, you know, not be convinced at the moment about, about the whole God thing. Some of you might not be convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And this series won't necessarily address that. I'm not going to try and convince you of that necessarily. But, but if we start with the position that we can believe the accounts of Jesus' life that we read in the Bible, if we can believe those accounts, what do they tell us about what Jesus thinks of us? So if we take those accounts at face value, how would Jesus answer the question, who are you or who am I? So I guess that's a little bit of a preview or like, I guess a movie trailer, if you like, of what, where we're going over the next four or five weeks. So we'll be looking through some passages in the book of, books of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, and we'll also be using some material from a book by Max Lucado called And the Angels Were Silent. So, for those of you who are interested to read more on this topic, point you towards that book. It's a really great read, and the angels were silent. But to kick things off for today, um, I've got an, a different question for you. Have you, ever, have you ever fully committed to doing something, only at the last minute to try and back out of it? When it came to actually going through with it, have you ever tried, or have you been wanted to back out? It could be anything. It doesn't need to be a big thing could be helping a friend move house, could be going to the gym, could just be getting out of bed to go to work. But how easy is it to talk yourself out of those kinds of things, those kinds of commitments? The exercise thing in particular gets me every morning. I'm a, I'm a bit of a classic for going to bed around 10 o'clock p.m. And I'm thinking to myself, gee, 5.30 is such a long way away. Seven and a half hours of bliss I'll go to bed now, I'll get up at 5.30, I'll work out for an hour. What a healthy boy I am. What an athlete. And I'd be comforted by those thoughts as I drift off to sleep, having set my alarm for 5.30, and one second later, it's 5.30, and the alarm's going off, and it's blaring in my eyes, I can't open them, there's like sand in them. And all of a sudden, in that one second of sleep, I've found three very, very good reasons why I shouldn't get out of bed. 
I think to myself, I haven't done a workout all week. Why would you start on a Thursday? <laughs> Wait till Monday. New week, new me. As I lie there, I also think, oh, I actually just remembered my left ankle is really stiff at the moment. And look, I probably won't injure it by working out, but it's just not worth the risk. Let's stay in bed. And I also think to myself, well, I'm actually going to uni today and I've got to walk from the train to the bus and then the bus back to the train and I'll be walking around uni. So do I really need a workout today? Probably not. So I snuggle in for another hour. And look, maybe you can relate to this, maybe you can't. I can see Cam, Cam Rove, I thought I saw him before, shaking his head, he can't believe it. I've headed to uni at 5am and Cam's out for his, what, on his 5k, getting ready to do another 15. I can't really identify with Cam at all sometimes. <laughs> and maybe you identify with this in a different way, maybe it's a different circumstance, but... It's funny how we all struggle with self-discipline on some level. We all struggle where we've committed to something, whatever it is, and we know that that something is best for us. We know it's the right thing to do. When it comes to actually doing it, we second-guess ourselves, or we rationalise ourselves into thinking there's a way out. We can, do, we can go a different way. And it's one thing to, to rationalise things away. It's one thing to struggle with motivation when... It's something that's good for you. It's something that you know is good for you, like exercise. But what about when it's something that you don't even get any benefit from? What if it's something where you'll just be helping someone else? You don't actually get anything out of it. Is it hard to motivate ourselves then? I think the thing that we come to understand is that it doesn't really even matter how high the stakes are sometimes. It doesn't really even matter how important things are sometimes. Just because we know something is right or something is best doesn't make it easy. And if you consider yourself a Christian, does this ever happen between you and God? Do you ever find yourself fighting God or begging God to change your circumstances, to give you a way out of something that you feel He's pushed you to commit to? For those of us who are younger, we're still at home, we have someone to answer to who pushes us to, do, to make these commitments. How often do we find ourselves saying to mum or dad, please don't make me do this? I remember when I was young, um, mum and dad signed me up for nippers, um, the surf life-saving things. So I got the little cap and the little DTs and I'm a very white, Welsh-backgrounded man, so it wasn't a great sight, me and my DTs, but I was excited when we first talked about going to nippers and then when the time came, I said, Mum, why are you making me do this? I don't, I don't want to do this. Do we ever do that with God? Do we ever beg for a way out? Well, today we're going, to, we're going to explore a time in the Bible where Jesus did exactly that. So we're going to explore the time when Jesus and his disciples, his closest friends, spent some time in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I guess just to orient ourselves in this story. In the time leading up to the story we're about to read, Jesus had multiple times talked to his friends about how he would eventually be betrayed by one of them, he would eventually uh, be handed over to the religious leaders of that time and that they would kill him. 
he's pretty open about this. And, and understandably, his, his followers, his disciples were pretty resistant to this idea. It's a, it's a pretty terrible idea. And, and maybe they consciously refused to believe what Jesus said, or maybe they thought that he was speaking metaphorically. But in any case, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to be arrested and eventually killed. And I guess, importantly, he knew that, that this was all part of the plan. Like, this is what he'd been sent here to do. This is the mission that he had volunteered for. And he was reaching the critical part of that mission. So he'd be preparing for this, these next few days for almost his entire earthly life. So when we pick up the story, he and his disciples had just finished what we call their Last Supper, um, which was part of a, a, the festival of Passover. Um, it's a Jewish tradition. And he knew that, that Judas, one of his 12 disciples, one of his closest friends, was going away to betray him to the people who wanted to kill him. Now, I think the thing that I found when I was reading up on this story, and, and I think maybe the thing that is true for some of us that have, I guess, grown up in church, or have been coming to church for a long time, this is, this is a story that we are pretty familiar with. We've heard this story a lot. And... Because of that, and I don't think it's anybody's fault, because when you hear a story over and over again, it's easy to become numb to those events. It's easy to hear them, and they go in one ear, and you, and you kind of know where the story's heading. Because of that, you're not really, well, I find, I'm not really invested so much in the events. It doesn't really ring as true or as real for me when I hear it over and over again. I don't know if that's true for you, but I find that I'm in danger when I hear these stories of, of switching off to the emotion and to the fear, uh, and I guess to the importance of what happens here. So I, I guess if you're like me, I'd like to encourage you to try and approach this story as if you're reading it for the first time. Uh, so we pick it up in, in Mark 14 and verse 32. It should come up on the screen. Um, so it says, They, Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. So you see, he's afraid, like genuinely afraid. This is not a movie where someone's play acting. This is genuine fear. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a pretty intense prayer. He's begging God to change his circumstances. He's begging God for a way out, for a back door, for another way to achieve what he came here to do. It's a pretty intense prayer, and it's an even more intense way to finish a prayer. I don't know how often I, I beg for God to change my circumstances. I ask God to, to give me a way out, but I rarely finish the prayer with, yet not, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus gives all his problems to God, begs him for a way out, and at the end he finishes off with, but don't do what I want you to do, do what you know is best. So it goes on and says, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. 
Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is Jesus at his most vulnerable. We don't see Jesus very vulnerable that often in in his story, in his journey, in his lifetime. This is the most vulnerable that we see Jesus. And so once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were weary. And they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So even if we are reading this for the first time, I feel like we are so far removed from this situation, from anything like this situation, that it's actually, it's difficult to comprehend what Jesus is going through here. Um, this, it's actually reminded me of this bit uh, in the movie The Bucket List. I'm not sure how many of you have seen that movie, but um, there's, a, there's a part where Morgan Freeman's character is contemplating his cancer diagnosis, right? Uh, and there's a quote from the movie that he, he's pondering this diagnosis and he's pondering his mortality. And he says, there was a survey once. A thousand people were asked if they could know in advance, would they want to know their exact day of their death? 96% of them said no. I always kind of lean toward the other 4%. I thought it would be liberating knowing how much time you had left to work with. It turns out it's not. It's a bit of an understatement, really. I actually thought about having a crack of reading that in my best Morgan Freeman voice, but uh, I don't really think I could have done it justice. So, But it is an interesting thought, isn't it? I mean, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting in an abstract way. It's interesting if, if we're a long way removed from that actual scenario. For those of you who have been in that scenario, I'm sure you, you wouldn't find it trivially interesting. You didn't find it trivially interesting. I think that's a bit of a problem that we have, particularly maybe as young people. When, when things, when the con- concept of death enters our minds, we, we feel about as far removed from that scenario as possible. But try and imagine, if you're young like me, or even if you're not, try and imagine having known from the time you finished school, or a bit later, thereabouts, imagine having known from that time that you would die in your early 30s. Imagine carrying that with you day after day. And not even really, sorry, not, not that you would die in your 30s. Imagine knowing that you would be killed in your 30s. Think of that sick feeling that you would carry in your stomach. Think about that, that sense of hopelessness that would sort of cover every other aspect of your life. It would be inescapable, wouldn't it? And now imagine that you've arrived at the night before You've known this was coming for years and you've arrived at the night before. You know it's the night before. You have a few short hours left. So how would you feel? What would you do? As we see in this story of Jesus, this is where Jesus is at. And this passage in Mark shows us a few things about Jesus in this moment. The first thing we see is that when Jesus is at his lowest point, he wants to turn to God. 
He chose to go to his Father in heaven. There are some other things that this passage shows us. First thing is, like we said before, he's afraid. Like he's genuinely afraid. And as I said, there are very few times that we see Jesus genuinely afraid. But Mark says here that he became deeply distressed and troubled. In another account, in Luke, it actually says his sweat, I've got to get this right, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is a guy in, in, under enormous stress. He doesn't know what's going on. He's not even thinking rationally at this point. I mean, would you? Could you? This point here, this account in the Garden of Gethsemane is as close as Jesus ever came to abandoning his mission. It's as close as he ever came to abandoning me, to abandoning you. We couldn't really blame him if he did, could we? And he didn't deserve to be there in that garden, about to be crucified. He'd done nothing wrong. And so he begs for God. He begs to his father to give him a way out. He begs to God, as we all too often do, to change his circumstances somehow. The second thing that we see is that he's alone. He's afraid and he's alone. This is the night before he's about to be whipped, he's about to be mocked, and then he'll be murdered. And, and he knows all this, and, and where are his friends? One of his friends is betraying him at that very moment, and the others are falling asleep. His friends obviously have no real concept of what he's going through. I think it's easy for me, it might be easy for you to wonder at this point, what, I wonder how his friends could let him down so badly at this time. And we read the Bible and we read where days earlier he said to them, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed, arrested, betrayed, handed over to people who will kill me. We know that this is coming if we read the Bible chronologically. The, the disciples should have known that this was coming. So, so what are they doing? It's easy for us to judge them for falling asleep when their friend was hurting. But how often do I only realize that my friends were struggling with something big once the worst part is over? How often do the people I love feel surrounded by people but still feel alone? I'm actually a lot like the disciples in this story. I'm often asleep and oblivious to the pain that's going on all around me. If Jesus were there, he would beg me gently to wake up and keep watch. And just imagine... Imagine this story, imagine how much more bearable this experience could have been if just one of Jesus' friends stayed up all night with him. Now, as much as we might often feel like the disciples in this story, there are also times when we feel like Jesus in a different way, to a lesser extent. There are times when we feel alone and afraid in our hardest times. The only place that Jesus could turn was to his Father in heaven. And that should have made things easier, right? We sing songs about that. If you've grown up in church, you've sung songs about that. Cast your burdens. Give everything to God, and that'll make things easier. Isn't, isn't that the idea? 
take it to God and he'll lighten that burden. If you look at what happened to Jesus, if you take things to God, your circumstances may not change. His burden didn't get any, I don't think his burden got any lighter. I don't think it got any easier to go through what he knew he had to. See, he went to God looking for a way out and God didn't give it to him. God didn't give him a way out. And he doesn't always give us a way out, but he did give him a way through. So I just want to ask you, when, when, when you go to God, do you use words like Jesus did? Do you use words like, yet not what I will, but what you will? Because that, that changes the dynamic of a prayer. It may, it's a pretty dangerous prayer when you think about it, because as soon as you say that, you're forfeiting the right to be angry at God with whatever outcome you get. And like, I, I might like to reserve the right to get angry at God later for not working things out the way that He should have done. So I think something that, to notice uh, for me and, and maybe for you from Jesus' example is that, that when you pray this way, when you come to God with requests but not with expectations or demands, you very, you very well may not leave with what you ask for. You might not leave with what you ask for, but you will always leave with enough. So Jesus didn't leave the garden with a lighter load. He left with the strength to carry it. So finally, I think that we see in, through this, this short passage we see this fear and this loneliness that Jesus has in this moment give way to trust. As we said, Jesus prays in a way that, that leaves his entire fate in God's hands. It's interesting that in this passage, it's one of the few times that we, we see Jesus use the word Abba, uh, which in that time, it's a word that was used by young children to speak to their fathers. So in this moment, Jesus came to God as a kid goes to their dad when things go all wrong, when they don't understand what's happening and they don't understand why it's happening. And this kind of trust, this kind of approach to God, it only really comes on the back of a relationship with God. I mean, we know this for our own lives, separate from our relationship with God, whether you believe in God or not. We trust the people that we know. We don't really trust, well, maybe. We don't really trust the people we don't know. We trust the people we know. Like, if I'm in a team building exercise with you, I might let you do trust falls with me, but I'm not going to tell you my secrets. I'm not going to trust you with, with the things that I'm struggling with the most. We don't expect casual acquaintances that we speak with once or twice or three times a week to support us in our most difficult times or to help us when our life just goes downhill all of a sudden, when the ground falls out from underneath us. But do we sometimes do that with God? Because I do. I have, I have a, a habit of getting into a, a pretty casual relationship with God. I talk to Him a few times a week, mostly about pretty unimportant stuff, and then something big hits me, and it knocks me off my feet, and then I run to God with this problem, with this thing that's hit me, and then I feel disappointed because I, I don't feel like I can feel his presence. 
I feel lost, I feel alone, because to me it feels like God is absent in this time, or He's not really addressing my problem. But what have I really done? I mean, it's, it's a pretty crude analogy, but I've run up to someone that really has become a casual acquaintance, and I've started calling him dad, or I've started, I've started trying to push on him this relationship that's, that's not really there anymore. So I shouldn't be surprised then when I find it hard to trust God in these times, because I haven't, I haven't built a father-son relationship with him. So Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, it tells us about him, about his relationship with God, about a trust that overcame fear and abandonment in the worst hours of his life. But, and we can also be challenged by the disciples' example to truly be present for the people around us. So that's all true, but if we come back to the title of this series, Who Am I?, What does Jesus' experience tell us about who we are? What does it tell us about what Jesus thinks we are like? It all really comes back to, to why did Jesus need to die at all? Why was he here on earth? I mean, if this was the critical point of his mission, when everything hung in the balance, what was he ultimately trying to win? Well, the answer is you. The answer is me. The answer is us. The mission hadn't changed. Jesus didn't go to God asking him, why why am I having to go through this? Jesus knew why. That wasn't really the question. Jesus begged for another way to save us because we're broken. I mean, I I don't even think you even really need to be a Christian to agree that on some level you're you're broken. I'm broken. You forget about what the Bible says I bet that sometimes you don't even do what you think you should do. I don't even do, I don't even live up to my own standards sometimes, let alone anybody else's. So I'm the problem that needed fixing. You are the problem that needed fixing. I feel like if, if mum were here, she and dad would be sort of eyeballing each other going, I don't know about me, but they need fixing. It's easy to look at other people and see that they need fixing, but... And I actually want to give you an opportunity now to, um, to voice that to someone next to you. So don't point at a stranger, but I want you to point at the person next to you and say, you're the problem. You needed fixing. <laughs> it feels good, hey? It feels good. <laughs> So for Jesus, it was never really a a question of, did we need saving? It was never a question of, why am I doing this? Because the real question that went unspoken while Jesus agonized and battled with his own weakness that night was, are they really worth this much? Are you, am I, really worth dying for? Because if I asked you, who are you? Is that how you'd respond? Would you respond, I'm, well, I'm a person worth dying for? The fact is, according to Jesus, that's how you should answer. You should say that. Because over and above all of the things that the Garden of Gethsemane says about Jesus' relationship with God, Jesus' relationship with his disciples, over and above all of that is, is how it shows us what Jesus thinks of you. 
and what Jesus thinks of me. So in that moment when he came back for the third time to his friends and they were asleep, for the third time, after hours of prayer all alone, if he had to sum them up in one word, if, he has, if, he, if that night he had to sum you up in one word, that word might just have been irreplaceable. So Max Lucado in his book, uh, And the Angels Were Silent, he, he, he says it like this, and I can't think of a better way to say it. So it's a pretty long quote, but I'll just read it to you. He says, there was a time when if he, Jesus, could have, if he could have, he would have turned his back on the whole mess and gone away. But he couldn't. He couldn't because he saw you, right there in the middle of a world which isn't fair. He saw you cast into a river of life that you didn't request. He saw you betrayed by those you love. He saw you with a body which gets sick and a heart which grows weak. He saw you in your own garden of gnarled trees and sleeping friends. He saw you staring into a pit of your own failures and the mouth of your own grave. He saw you in your garden of Gethsemane and he didn't want you to be alone. He wanted you to know that he has been there. He's been there too. And later Max Lucado says, when, when Jesus left the garden of Gethsemane, he says, the battle is won. You may have thought that it was won on Golgotha, where he was crucified, but it wasn't. You may have thought that the sign of victory was an empty tomb. It wasn't. The final battle was won in Gethsemane. And the sign of the conquest is Jesus at peace in the olive trees. For it was in the garden that he made his decision. He would rather go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. I'll read that last quote again. He would rather go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. So who are you? How would you describe yourself? Because when Jesus chose you in Gethsemane, when he chose you above himself, he said that you were valuable. So as we enter the next week, I'd like to leave you with a challenge. First, when you're, when you're in your own garden of Gethsemane, when we're all alone, when we're hurting and weak, let's try to turn to God with requests but not demands. Because we see from Jesus that coming to God and saying, I don't know what's happening. What, like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know, what, I don't know why I have to be here. And, and can you please get me out of this? That's not, that's not a wrong thing to do. Coming to God with requests is not the wrong thing to do. I guess the trick is to finish our prayer like Jesus. To finish with yet not what I will, but what you will. So in good times, let's try and build a trust in God that allows us to say, I wish you would change my circumstances in the hard times, but I know that you'll give me what I need even if it isn't what I want. And finally, I just want to challenge you as you go about this next week and as we move through this series, I want you to go away thinking that if Jesus sees you as valuable, I believe he challenges us to see others as valuable as well. 
So the question I want to leave you with today, it's a pretty short sermon. I love, I love a short sermon. I want you to ask yourself, is there anyone in my life who's broken and needs fixing like me, who I can uplift to their rightful value? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we just come to you now and we just pray that uh, at this time uh, and, and throughout the rest of this day that you will be with us. We pray that you will you'll clear our minds. We're all so busy and we're all so distracted, but we pray that today you will clear our minds and open our hearts. Pray that you get, you, you get me out of your way and that you let your words settle in the hearts of, of everybody here. We also praise you and thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus saw us as valuable. We thank you that you, Father God, saw us as valuable. And we pray that you might use us, you might remind us to show other people how valuable they are as well. In Jesus' name, amen.